From the JAMA Network, this is the JAMA Medical News Podcast. Discussing timely topics in clinical medicine, biomedical sciences, public health, and health policy featured in the medical news section of JAMA. Hi, I'm Faiza Sanjar, and this is the JAMA Medical News Summary, an audio review of highlights in the medical news appearing in this month's issues of the journal. Today, I'll be reviewing the May 2019 issues of JAMA. Starting with features, in the May 7th issue, Rita Rubin writes about the health benefits of a high-fiber diet. A recent series of systematic reviews and meta-analyses showed that intake of fiber and whole grains was associated with significant reductions in mortality and chronic illnesses, including coronary heart disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and colorectal cancer. There was evidence of a striking dose response suggesting the relationship between a high-fiber diet and lower disease risk could be causal. High dietary fiber also lowered body weight, systolic blood pressure, and cholesterol, according to randomized clinical trials. These beneficial effects of fiber appear to be independent of its effect on weight, and the underlying mechanisms for fiber's protective properties appear to extend beyond its role in speeding stool through the colon. Fiber has also been shown to improve insulin sensitivity and lipid profile and reduce inflammation. While other nutrients that accompany fiber may also account for such benefits, experts suggest both likely factor in. But experts caution not to reach for products packed with synthetic fiber, expecting the same returns. Most available evidence is based on studies of fiber-rich whole foods, not synthetic substitutes. Given the health gains bestowed by fibrous foods, experts emphasize the need for public health messages encouraging consumption of dietary fiber and how to do it. Next up in features, Rebecca Volker reports on the utility of using art to improve medical students' attitudes about dementia. Many non-clinical arts programs in medical school curricula have been successful in addressing assumptions and fears related to treating patients with dementia. In one program, Opening Minds Through Art, students and people with dementia work together to produce failure-free works of art. The intention is to focus more on the process of creating art rather than the final product and along the way help the students learn more about people with dementia. The program helped to cultivate the students' patience and compassion, significantly improving their attitudes towards people with dementia. To learn more, visit the May 14th issue. In the May 21st issue, Rita Rubin discusses whether skipping breakfast helps or hinders weight loss efforts. A recent systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials suggests that skipping breakfast might help people lose weight, challenging the widely held belief that skipping breakfast slows the metabolism and leads to overeating. However, scientists skeptical of recent research linking breakfast to weight gain note that many participants in these studies consume breakfast foods high in refined carbohydrates and sugars, like donuts and cereals. So it may be an issue of what, rather than whether, the participants ate at breakfast. The other consideration is the duration of the studies, many of which were too short to definitively determine how breakfast affects metabolism and weight. So what's the bottom line? Eat or ditch breakfast to better manage weight. According to experts, there simply isn't enough high-quality evidence to conclusively answer this question. In this same issue, Dara Grenin writes about a day in the life of a wilderness medicine physician. Whether it's providing rescue and emergency medical services for skiers and snowboarders, or medical support on exotic missions, 
Scott McIntosh, MD, discusses how he spends his days keeping people safe and healthy in the wilderness. Visit JAMANetwork.com to learn more about his work and wilderness medicine. In the last issue of the month, Jennifer Abbasi interviews Dr. John T. Wilkins, a co-author of a recent observational study published in JAMA that threw eggs and dietary cholesterol back into the limelight. Just when we all thought eggs were back on the menu, the findings from this study may once again give egg lovers pause. The study showed that higher consumption of dietary cholesterol or eggs was associated with an increased risk of incident cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. Here's Jen with Dr. Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins is an assistant professor of cardiology at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine here in Chicago. For their study, his team pooled individual-level data from 29,615 participants in six prospective cardiovascular disease cohort studies in the United States, with a median follow-up of 17 and a half years. Dr. Wilkins recently joined me in the studio to discuss how to interpret the results, where things stand on cholesterol, and yes, how many eggs he eats in a week. Dr. Wilkins, how has the thinking on dietary cholesterol and eggs changed over the years leading up to your study? So there's been some disagreement or some conflicting data on the associations between eggs and cardiovascular disease risk. There are some earlier studies that suggested that consumption of diets that were rich in dietary cholesterol and eggs led to increased risk for cardiovascular disease. And then over time, there have been other studies, some good observational studies and meta-analyses that suggest that those risks may be modest or, in fact, may not be present at all. There are also studies suggesting that the risks associated with dietary cholesterol consumption may be differential by different forms of cardiovascular disease, meaning stroke or heart failure or coronary heart disease. And, you know, this has led to considerable confusion I mean, equipoise in the field. And I think we still are searching for definitive answers about whether or not consumptions of diets higher in cholesterol are good or bad for you. So how did this study come about? Based on sort of the background that I just shared with you, we thought that it would be useful to do a high quality pooled data analysis to assess the associations between dietary cholesterol and cardiovascular endpoints and total mortality in a U.S.-based population. We're also really interested in trying to statistically account for, as best we can, other dietary characteristics that are also associated with dietary patterns that involve high cholesterol intake. Meaning, if you eat, let's say, two eggs a day, but the rest of your diet is all vegetables and a low-sodium diet, do those eggs portend any higher level of cardiovascular disease risk. And that's actually a tricky thing to do. You need large samples and really high quality phenotyping of what people are eating in order to try to answer those questions. And so we really wanted to get at that. We were also interested in looking at longer time horizons. So instead of saying, you know, eating eggs in one year, what are the risks two to three to five years later? We were curious, what happens if you look at a longer time horizon? Look out to 15, 20 years, which is what we did in this study. And so because we had a large sample size of very, very well phenotyped participants, I think we were able to get some insight into those questions. Okay, so now let's talk about the findings. What did you learn? 
In a large sample of U.S.-based cardiovascular disease cohort participants, we found that eating larger amounts of cholesterol and or eggs was associated with a modestly higher risk for mortality and cardiovascular disease endpoints over 17 and a half years of follow-up. I also want to add that when you adjusted the consumption of higher cholesterol foods and or eggs for overall diet quality, the association persisted. We found that consumption of every additional 300 milligrams per day of dietary cholesterol was significantly associated with you know, higher risks for incident cardiovascular disease events and total mortality. As far as eggs go, for each additional half an egg consumed per day was significantly associated with a higher risk of incident CBD and mortality as well. However, the association between consumption of eggs and cardiovascular disease and mortality was attenuated after you adjusted for the cholesterol content. So how big of an effect on risks of cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality are we talking about? Are these big absolute risks or small? The effect sizes that we report and that we found are, are actually, I mean, you could say fairly you know, modest. I certainly wouldn't have expected effect sizes larger than this. We're not making the case that eggs are poisonous. The difference in risks that we saw for dietary patterns that involved higher cholesterol intake for mortality and cardiovascular disease ranged between about 1% and 4% difference in absolute risk for mortality or cardiovascular disease over 17 and a half years of follow-up. Listen to our medical news podcast at JAMANetworkAudio.com to learn more about this controversial study. The May issues also feature two quick uptakes where we recap recent studies and events in the world of medicine. In the first, which appeared in the May 7th issue, Rebecca Volker reports on a recent analysis in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society exploring how multiple symptoms affect older adults' functional abilities. The study included over 7,000 Medicare enrollees who underwent in-person interviews, physical tests, and mental health measures assessing symptoms including pain and depressed mood and other factors like gait speed and hospitalizations. Ultimately, the study found more symptoms led to greater functional decline, including a 35% higher risk of developing muscle weakness, an 80% increased risk of deleterious declines in walking speed, and an 85% higher risk of developing poor lower extremity function. The study underscores the importance of the cumulative effect of multiple symptoms when evaluating an older patient's prognosis. In the May 28th installment, Rebecca Volker also reports on a recent analysis that found nearly all medications contained potentially allergenic inactive ingredients. Clinical reports of adverse reactions triggered by inactive ingredients have been increasing, according to the findings published in Science Translational Medicine. The average capsule or tablet of medication contains about nine inactive ingredients, and only 12% of solid oral medications contain no potentially allergenic inactive ingredients, the study found. Nearly half of all solid oral medications contain lactose, making it the most common allergenic ingredient. However, several others, including cornstarch and food colorings, follow close behind. The key takeaway message for clinicians is that prescribed medications include much more than the active ingredient, according to the authors. Physicians should be especially mindful of this when treating elderly patients who may take up to 10 medications a day. 
Next up in our running series, Bench to Bedside, Tracy Hampton discusses a recent study in immunity that uncovers a novel molecular mechanism whereby fever promotes T lymphocyte homing to sites of infection. Fever-induced expression of heat shock protein 90, which then bound and clustered alpha-4 integrins on the lymphocyte surface to promote blood vessel adhesion. This response was only triggered at temperatures above 101 degrees Fahrenheit, suggesting that allowing a fever to run its course, rather than immediately treating with fever reducers, may have biological benefits. This novel pathway could also be exploited to make T-cells superhomers in efforts to combat cancer during immunotherapy, experts suggest. For more details, visit the May 7th issue of JAMA. In our monthly column covering the latest biotech innovations, Jennifer Abbasi writes about a new AI software that identifies cardiac rhythm devices on patient x-rays, a tool that could quickly identify malfunctioning pacemakers and defibrillators implanted in patients. In other biotech news, a novel nanochip that measures exosomal protein markers in blood could pave the way for early ovarian cancer detection, and off-the-shelf bioengineered blood vessels for hemodialysis access in patients with end-stage renal disease showed promise. Visit the May 14th issue of JAMA to read more. Moving on to headlines in the news from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Food and Drug Administration. Bridget Kuhn covers the recent CDC data that suggests TB rates have reached the lowest ever reported in the U.S. According to other CDC reports, the majority of new HIV cases in 2016 stemmed from people who didn't know they had HIV or weren't receiving treatment. Rates of occupational COPD were highest among office workers in administrative and information fields, and kratom-related deaths topped 90 between 2016 and 2017. For more details, visit the May 14th and 28th issues. Rebecca Volker reports that the FDA has proposed amendments to key regulations to improve the quality of mammography services, one of which would add breast density information to mammography results. In other headlines, the agency approved a new device for patients with heart failure and a new drug to treat adults with relapsing forms of multiple sclerosis. I also write about the agency's recent approval of the first two-drug regimen for HIV, the first precision medicine treatment for adults with metastatic erothelial carcinoma, and a new osteoporosis drug for postmenopausal women at high risk of bone fractures. For more in news from the FDA, visit the May 7th and 21st issues. And last but not least, in the May 28th issue of JAMA, Anita Slomsky reviews findings from five recently published randomized clinical trials. Among them, two studies in NEJM found that transcatheter aortic valve replacement was safe, effective, and non-inferior to surgical aortic valve replacement in patients with severe aortic stenosis at low risk of death from surgery. In other clinical trial news, thyroidectomy improved quality of life and fatigue in patients with persistent Hashimoto symptoms despite thyroid hormone replacement. Both psychotherapy and cognitive behavioral therapy improved symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder, although results with CBT were more consistent. Higher dose folic acid supplementation in pregnant smokers improved fetal growth and infant birth weight. To read more about these and other trials, see our clinical trials update column. For more in medical news, including the JAMA Forum, Global Health, and Health Agencies updates, visit our May issues online at jamanetwork.com. 
That's all for this month's medical news highlights. Join us next month for another episode of the JAMA Medical News Summary. To listen to more podcasts and subscribe, go to jamanetworkaudio.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or Google Play. Audio production of this episode was by Michelle Krasinski. Once again, this is Faisal Sanjar, director and editor of JAMA Medical News. Thanks for listening.